Welcome listeners to the final installment of this 2020 season of Praxis. If you've listened this far, you know the deal. This season has been a revisitation of a radio road trip I took in the summer of 2015, meeting activists, organizers, artists, and friends all across the U.S. and Canada. If this is your first episode, that's fine too, but I recommend listening back through the earlier episodes or the trailer to get a full feel for the show. You can find all of that anywhere you listen to podcasts at praxisradio.com slash subscribe. Today's show will be a little different because I'm attempting to catch the pieces that were unable to fit elsewhere, share some stories from folks who couldn't be interviewed a second time this summer, include some teaser content for the archive that's being amended to include all the full-length interviews, and pay tribute to a guest on the show who's no longer with us. Before we get to the new, I want to just recap where we've been over these past few months, paying short homage to the generous folks who shared their time and wisdom with me, and boiling down what I learned in each conversation. We started in Portland with Paul, who taught us ways to popularize anarchism and anti-fascism while your city is under siege. Went to Colorado, where Jim taught us how to keep people's history alive, bring it to life for the first time, and take down monuments to oppressive systems and figures. In that same episode, Elka at Bread and Puppet in Vermont shared lessons on how to use old skills and simple tools to stoke radical imagination for 50 years. Chaz in South Dakota taught us by example how to radicalize self-care practice by knowing when to take a step back and care for your direct community, and offered guidance on how to decolonize our movements. In Detroit, Peter taught us how to stay radical as you grow up, as seen in 55 years of anarchist publishing at Fifth Estate. In that same episode, Sandy in Montreal taught us how to use books and theater to spread anarchist ideas and root radical praxis. In New York City, Rachel raised questions on how to leverage the crucial power of artists' way of seeing the world in mass movements. The next four guests all had their roots in one rally, at least in relationship to meeting me, in Richmond, California. There was Ratha, who taught us how to build and maintain powerful coalitions across differences that can fight the intersecting factors behind climate chaos for the long haul. And Ethan, who taught us how to sustain ourselves through long-term organizing work and learn to step back and support local and most impacted leaders. Reverend Earl taught us how to use the power of storytelling to power ecological justice with honesty and without hopium. He introduced me to Kim, who spoke to me from Atlanta, teaching how to bridge the gap between the white supremacist legacy of the environmental movement and the reality of Black leadership on environmental justice work as we build power. Andy at Project Censored taught us how to be media critical, to spot bullshit, and to question the benevolence of our tech overlords. Paul sent me to Kai in New Orleans, who taught us how to bring militant whimsy, joy, jokes, and radical jazz-infused vision to our abolition practice. Farrell in Montreal showed us how to learn from the history of movements, see patterns, and remember to question everything in our dystopian world. And in the last full episode, Jennifer and Arnie in Denver shared what they know about learning how to listen, step up, and physically protect those most vulnerable under empire. While Arturo, from his life in sanctuary in a Denver church back in 2015, taught us how to have the courage to be publicly vulnerable and bring injustice to light. I'm so honored to have been able to spend time with all of these amazing people, both five years ago and then again in my series of pandemic long-distance phone interviews. Both the radio iteration of this show in the past and this podcast project now have consistently challenged me to be more critical of my own praxis and question my assumptions about how social change ought to look. 
One person really reminded me of that need for flexibility in our beliefs as we work towards social change in whatever form we desire. I was sad to discover through a mutual friend when his email bounced during my round of reaching out this summer that he had died in 2018. His name was Richard Stone. The Fresno Paper Community Alliance describes him as a beloved member of the progressive community, and I'd like to share the bulk of our conversation from summer 2015 when we sat in his living room and talked broadly about it all. I have been lucky in my life to have many wonderful elders who help impart wisdom and ground the impatience of youth in the vision of the long game. Richard didn't describe himself as an organizer, and in revisiting this conversation at the start of a new year, setting new intentions for myself, I really loved thinking and hearing about his thoughts on a more yogic approach to changing ourselves and then, maybe, the world. Here's that interview with Richard. Rest in power and peace. Okay, my name is Richard Stone. I've lived in Fresno since 1978. I'm actually a native New Yorker, born in the Bronx, but we, my partner and I came out here in 78 with no intention to stay, and here we are 30-odd years later. During this time, I've been involved with several different kinds of of endeavors. Earliest ones was there was a a newly forming gay activist community and I got involved with that working on the newspaper and we uh, started a helpline and a community center which didn't last in perpetuity but long enough to get some things established and and now there's a pretty thriving gay community. And then about 20 years ago, through almost accidental circumstances, I became involved with the Fresno Center for Nonviolence. And as much through that involvement as through my own initiative, actually began to look at what was involved with the causes of violence in our world and how to alleviate them with the understanding that you can't use violent means to end violence. What you're left with is hard work (laughs) and slow going. But I've I've been working with the center for over 20 years now and also with our wonderful community newspaper, the Community Alliance, which I think is over 10 years now it's a monthly newspaper, which has, I call it, all the news that's not in the, the Fresno Daily. And I've just been learning about the people who uh, are involved in similar kinds of activities and here to answer any of your questions. Great. What, uh, what kept you in Fresno against your expectations all those years ago? Partly there was just no specific place that we wanted to go to. And the connections that I fell into were, were very growth-producing, and, and it's, it's an easy place to live, except for the climate, which is <laughs> pretty awful. You know, we can buy a house cheaply, uh, easy to get around in, everything is 10 or 15 minutes away. So it's been an easy place to live in that respect. But I think mostly just the the fact that I became connected in in ways that challenged me and 
I'm not a competitive person at all. We lived in the Bay Area for a while, and I felt very overwhelmed there. There were so many people doing things who um, seemed they could do them better than I could. Mm. And, and here, anything I wanted to try, people were open to because there was no one else doing it. So it, it's provided opportunities for me that I, I would not have found in a, in a larger place. And you just showed me this book of profiles that you've done over the years writing for Community Alliance of Progressive Activists in Fresno. And it's not an overwhelmingly progressive city. Um, <laughs> so these people are very important proportionately to the population. It's called Hidden in Plain Sight. What commonalities did you find in those profiles between people who kind of end up in, in that role in society? Well, I mean, there are, are some very young people there who may or may not continue, and there are people who have been doing the work for 50 years. I think the, the commonality is, is a feeling that of frustration at, at the way politics and economics are done in this country and in this place. And... Again, the, the same thing that I experienced, so here's an opportunity, there's actually an opportunity for me to do something. And it, it feels so good to be able to do that and, and, and feel part of something, part of a movement. And there are a lot of people trying to do that in various ways, and there's no one way to do it. But there are a lot of people who are trying to do it. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, obviously there's so much to to work on right now because the world is shot to hell in many different ways at the moment because of the violence you were mentioning earlier kind of across the board. But where are you seeing people focus their efforts and where do you think people should most focus their efforts right now? Well, I don't, I don't think there's a should. I think, okay. I think people need to find where what draws their passion, where, where they feel most connected. And also, it's also a matter of fact of who you connect with, who are the people who encourage you and back you up and that you work well with. You no way to know in advance. <laughs> and in, in some ways, I'm, I'm a pessimist. I, I think in, in some ways that we're past the tipping point, that civilization as we know it is, is unsustainable and will not be sustained. I don't know what it's... 30 years, 50 years, 100 years. Mm -hmm. But what I've come to, I don't know whether it's kind of a vision or a, a hope or an intuition or whatever, is that, that there really is an intelligence operating in the universe, not necessarily in control, <laughs> but there, that we can align ourselves with it and we can be contribute to the work of of creating order and of creating kinship and, and the kind of unity that's needed, no matter what happens to our civilization. I mean, that, that seems to be the only life worth living. I don't know how else to do it. Sure. And uh, how does that maybe tie in to um, work with the Center for Nonviolence? And how, what role does nonviolence play in, in kind of actualizing that well, vision? When early on in our time together there, we put together what we call a peace agenda, which has four basic tenets to it, which I probably can't repeat offhand, but that's really been a guide for me. The understanding 
of nonviolence and what that means. I don't, I don't think it's possible to have that as an absolute, but as a direction to say, how can we bring more nonviolence into the world? How can we live less violently? That can be a constant aspiration. And for me, that's the underpinning of, of pretty much everything that I do. Um, you know, am I working in that direction or not? Other than that, you know, where, where I connect myself, just it's not so much by design or by willpower or by intention. Things kind of happen. <laughs> I got involved with the, with the center purely accidentally. I had visited a, a friend in Berkeley, and he took me to see a, a one-woman play by a Palestinian woman. And I enjoyed it very much, and afterwards asked her whether she might be willing to come to Fresno. And she said, yeah, you know, for a couple of hundred dollars and whatever, I'd be glad to do that. I said, oh, that sounds doable. So I came back and wanted to do that, intended to do that, but had no idea how to go about it. I mean, I knew how I, how I could bring her, but I didn't know I needed some way of getting the word out that she was coming. I had no thoughts of how to do this. A colleague at work said, oh, you should try this new center that just opened. So I, I went down there to their meeting and presented this and said, I'd like to do it and I'll front the money, but I need help with the publicity and getting a place and everything. And they said, oh yeah, well, we'd be glad to do that. So we did that and uh, it wasn't a money-making enterprise, but it was a good experience, and people enjoyed it. And a week later, I got a call and said, would you like to be our program director? <laughs> <laughs> so, if there had been a job description out, I would never have answered that. Mm-hmm. It's just not how I saw myself at yeah. all. But the opportunity was there, and, and I thought it through and said it, and had some conditions, and, and they agreed to them, and... So we did it, and I got started there. Same thing with the uh, the Alliance. I would never have thought of myself. I've submitted articles to them, but they invited me to come onto the editorial board. I had never. And then once I was there, the, like, the idea of doing these weekly, these monthly profiles came, and they said, oh, that's a good idea. So I started doing them. You know, it's not something I intended to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that tends to be a good sign, though, I think. Yeah. People who are out seeking. And right now, one are... of the, the most meaningful pieces of work that I'm doing, I'm in semi-retirement now, doing a lot less than before. But one of my colleagues at the, at the center has been involved with prison work for 30 years. And she, again, provided the opportunity for me to work with her uh, we go out to one of the local state prisons every week, and we run a group there. It's a, a curriculum. It's about a four-month curriculum called Houses of Healing. And the guys who, who come in commit themselves very deeply to changing their lives, understanding how they got there, what's their responsibility, what happened in their lives that led them that way, what they can do differently, how they have to reconceive and restructure their lives. And it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful program. It's something I feel privileged to be part of. And again, if, if someone had said, 
uh, would you like to engage in prison work? Yeah. What that occurred to me. Huh. So it's all kind of fallen into place over the years. <laughs> what do you think makes that happen? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm just curious. I have people ask me all the time how, you know, I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. What, what I've concluded is I, I rarely make decisions. I do. One of, one of the characters in the book there is a guy named George Ballas, who I worked with for several years. And he, he did what he called counseling. Not like a mental health counselor, but C-O-U-N-C-I-L, counsel. And what it means is that people who are involved, or sometimes your own inner voices that are involved, you let them each speak, and they talk to each other. If you're doing it with, with several people, if you do it in a circle, and just let the, with a, a talking stick, and let the stick circulate, and people listen to each other. And eventually, something happens where people see a way to deal with it, that's taking everyone's concerns into account. And I, I say I do that internally, too, when I'm confronted with a decision or how to do something. I, I, my most frequent phrase is, I don't know. <laughs> but I had an interesting experience with that, too. <laughs> Many years ago, I, I was just in a, a life situation where I would just say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And gradually that changed and morphed and became Adonai, which is Hebrew for my Lord, which is a prayer. I don't know. <laughs> Give me guidance, I don't know. And, and I, I think, I mean, it, it doesn't always happen in the timing that you want, or I think if you remain open, and don't try and impose your will on the world. Something happens. I don't. I don't know what. It's. I'm. I'm not a, like a mystic or someone who, who thinks that you know there's a someone watching over you who will make good things happen. Maybe there is. I don't know. But I say, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I've had over and over again, where just something opens and that gives me a direction for the next year, five years, ten years, mm -hmm. whatever. I had an experience, I was in the Peace Corps in Ethiopia when I was a very, very young man, and had an occasion to go back about seven years ago. A friend who was, I met in Fresno, but now lives in, in the East Coast, Ethiopian friend, and he was going back and invited me to go with him said, you need to go back and see what's going on now. And so I went, and something happened. I, I had an anxiety attack. I, the altitude, it's up about 7,000 feet, the altitude affected me very strongly, mm. and I, I was completely incapacitated. I just could hardly move. And my friend said, and, and said well, you need to come out with me. Come to, we're gonna, I'm going to meet some friends and have tea. So I went with them, and there was this one man, he, something in his voice calmed me, it just like penetrated me, and calmed me down. And at one point he asked me, you know, what are you doing here? And I explained a little bit. I said, and, and I was here 40 years ago. My second year, first year I was in the capital, but the second year I went out to a tiny town in, in uh, Wallaga, 
you might, you might not even know it, Dembidolo. And he looked at me and said, that's where I'm from. Mm. <laughs> and he wound up in, inviting me to stay with him uh, in his apartment. We had very, very profound encounters and conversations. And it was like something that had happened 40 years ago, this out of time in a continuum that was out of chronological time. And I just tapped back into it. So, you know, I can make up stories about this, but I don't, I don't know whether they're real or whether they're stories. Sure. But that's what it seemed like to mm. me. And, and I feel like there's, there is this, somehow the stream of something that we're not very aware of or occasionally aware of, but that, that we're part of it. And if we allow it to, to lead us, good things happen. Yeah, how do you think on a on a societal level we can allow for that space? Like what what do you think are the conditions that create possibilities for that kind of openness and connection? Yeah. I I think for the most part it happens on the on the personal level, on the individual and personal level. But there are certainly ways of all of our institutions are bound or confined, confining. I, I have a book I call Beyond, <laughs> which is looking at several of it, like education and health and religion and, and sexuality, and saying, how do, how do you open up our conceptions of what's possible in these areas? And in every area, there are, there are ways to do that, to, to move beyond what we think education means or beyond what we think healthcare means or religion, how to get people to do that and to aspire for it, that's, that's what my work has been, is looking, looking how, how do we do this? That's what the Center for Nonviolence is, is about. How do we create opportunities for people to open up their minds beyond uh, what they know or think they know? It's not something... I. I've been told by wise people that that's not something that you can make happen. Mm -hmm. All you can do is work towards it, and when it happens, it happens, and your work has been valuable, but you you don't make it happen. Uh, I work with yoga, too, I'm a yoga instructor, and that's one of the the principles there. You You can do the work, you can prepare yourself for something to happen, you can prepare for meditation, for opening yourself, but you're not in control over whether it happens or not. But it typically doesn't happen unless you do the work. Hmm. I tend to have, you know, in less time, but uh, had some pretty, had some experiences that would affirm that. And it seems, on the surface, kind of counter to the whole idea of, of activism, right, and of organizing, which is kind of all about making things happen, at right. least on the surface. What, what's your take on that? I mean, Some of my best friends are organizers. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, and I support their work. It's not where I live. But some people are born to do that. They, that's, that's their medium. <laughs> they have the, the strength and the, the daring and the whatever to go out there and confront and... and challenge people and I support their work and when I can I go out there and join them.
No. I don't have a constitution to do that. <laughs> yeah. I have to find another way. Yeah. I don't know whether I do either. I don't. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But, the, but the storytelling aspect, I mean, in terms of um, whether it's through Community Alliance, whether it's through other mediums, Absolute, I think is absolutely. a huge part of it. Absolutely. Well, everything, you know, like the, the yoga, too. I mean, people come to you, I guess, because they, they want to relax. But they're, once they start doing it, there's so much more to it. They might not even be aware that there's more to it, but mm -hmm. there is. You're learning how to live in your body in a non-willful way, where you're not forcing yourself into achievement. Some yoga, like a gyms, is taught that way, mm -hmm. that you're... That's not no. like real yoga. Yeah. Yoga is about yoking the mind and the body. And for people to learn how to live that way, it's very different than straight ahead. Um, I'm going to achieve what I'm going to achieve. There are just all kinds of ways to do it. Here you are sitting here. How did you get here? <laughs> because I knew Hollis 30 yeah, years ago. sure, exactly. Because we were Hi, together Hollis. at the center. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, it is. There is a, another one of these wonderful say, how did it get here, organizations called uh, Central Valley Progressive PAC. And that's their, their mission, is to figure out electorally how to win city council elections and shift the basis of power. It looks like there's... Oh, I missed Funa bombs today. They're great. I'm looking at this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I did that in Spokane for a while. But, um, yeah, I'm just looking through this list. Right. Well, yeah, is there anything else you want to add for people? Things you want people to know about? Anything at all? Resources? Yeah. Well, the, the, the newspaper and KFCF radio station 88.1 FM, furthest to the left on the dial. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's actually our call number, too, is at it? KYRS. Yeah. Yeah. They bring the information. They're, they're wonderful community resources. I think people who, who come here looking for progressive engagements are very surprised at what is available, what there actually is. It's been slow developing, but now there are just a lot of people working on things from a lot of different angles. Something that I think is a, just an extraordinarily wonderful example, over the last two years, the city and the police have dismantled all the homeless encampments where you know, people had actually created some semblance of shelter and community and they just went in with bulldozers and tore it all down and scattered people, right? And, and they said, they say, did you have a plan on what to do with these people before you did that? No. So just as, as a response to that, one woman took her life savings, bought a, a property, which is a house in a very, very large enclosed back area, and has converted it into a model of a homeless encampment where they have cement slabs for people to put their tents on. They have three or four people living in the house. They screen people coming in. They have house meetings. People share responsibilities. They have a big garden. They help figure out you know, what's it, how to get beyond this. It's all done by, it started by one person and they have a, a little private 
corporation that does this. Meanwhile, the city does nothing. Wow. This, the city, what the city has done is build a couple of apartment complexes at just huge expense per person, housing, I don't know, maybe 40 people. And there are only maybe 15 or 20 people at this, but it's a model that could be easily and cheaply replicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Is that nearby? Uh, nothing's far. Okay. okay. <laughs> it's like, like 15 it minutes, 10, oh, 15 okay. minutes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I should probably hit the hay pretty okay. soon and get stuff done. Yeah. Thanks for talking with me. Okay. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Richard, wherever you may be, for sharing your home, your cat, and your thoughts with me that day. The rest of the episode is going to pick up some loose ends, highlights I don't want to leave behind, a catch-all of issues and approaches just like the whole trip and the whole show. These ones will proceed in the order they happened, starting in Eugene, Oregon, where I got a flat tire in front of anarchist and anti-civilization thinker John Zerzan's house. That seems like it should be symbolic in some way or the setup for a joke, but I can't quite work it out. John is one of the people who most challenged my thinking during my baby anarchist days, and I've been happy to be in conversation with him for the show multiple times since then. We had two long conversations that probably should have been their own episode, but I'll share some now, and you can look forward to the rest in the archive. Here's part of what we discussed this summer by phone. Okay, I'm John Zerzan. I'm an anarchist writer. I've been around quite a while, and I've come to uh, anti-civilization, anti-technology orientation or conclusion. And, um, yeah, trying to pursue this stuff in my writings and on my weekly anarchy radio uh, broadcast. Um, yeah, basically, that's uh, it's been a long road, and I'm... I was just saying, I'm trying to keep open to, uh, you You have to be willing to change your mind, you know, if you get, as if the evidence is telling you to, and uh, it's always a challenge because I think we're always prone to ideological hardening of the arteries. Mm-hmm. And that's a perfect segue, because, so we talked in 2015, and we talked, I think, also back in 2012 when I was first starting the show. And, you know, you've been pretty consistent over the years in a lot of, you know, aspects of your your philosophy. And since I'm revisiting these interviews from five years ago, what has changed in your outlook or your perspective or kind of the landscape as you see it in the last five years? And what are you doing now that might be different than then? Well, I don't know if it's making me see things differently. I mean, it's gotten worse. It's gotten visibly worse. And I think that has to do with things on a civilizational level. You know, I've been thinking more about the idea that civilizations fail. They all seem to fail. And then the next one has a bigger reach. It has to have a bigger reach because civilizations consume their host. And then that's the end of that civilization, you know, more or less, to put it that way. Anyway, we're really seeing it now. I mean, it's just everything. What was really starting me to think maybe about this uh, a little more urgently was the mass shootings, the school shootings. And that was that predates five years ago. I mean, it really started at the end of the 90s. So that has always gotten my attention. And, you know, what's up with that? Is that ever going to get better or are we going to just see... This is just a commonplace that never gets fixed. 
And now, of course, we're in the age of pandemics. These things are not not new. You know, Zika, Ebola, H1N1, there's a whole big list, and the list is getting longer, and they're coming closer together and, and again, have a bigger reach. That's why it's the word is pandemic, not just... And what I'm seeing more of, and I think I'm not the only one, that these things merge together. They impact each other, the the environmental crisis, the uh, climate crisis, and the and now the health crisis, the pandemic crisis. You know, I was just reading about how air pollution exacerbates the, the seriousness of the COVID-19 strain infections. You're more likely to die. And we know that actually air pollution is a far bigger pandemic than this coronavirus thing. I mean, it's just it kills a lot more people. And But this is much more, in a way, timely, I guess. You can't we read about it, of course, every single day. But these things, it's deepening the crisis, and it's an overarching crisis. So that I think now, at least I'm hoping, I see some signs of the, what I'm getting at is that more people have to question things more deeply. There's more of a likelihood that they do or will In 2015, we had begun talking about the signs of increased receptivity to forbidden ideas regarding anarchism, the left, and civilization itself. Again, full versions will be in the archives soon. What is your hope in, you know, putting, I think even after all these years, anarchism is still a taboo in a lot of ways. I guess, what's your strategy? What's your idea with, I mean, calling it Anarchy Radio and just putting that idea just out front? And how has that played out for you? Well, like you were saying before, there's we can discover that there's people who are ready for real stuff that was shocking. Let me put it this way. When I started uh, doing some speaking in, in other countries, starting in 2001, I think it was, If and if you go back to the same place, and here this would have more to do with the U.S., not that that happens a lot, but I have been in the same place again. And then you can tell, you can get some gauge in terms of remembering the reaction the first time around. And you're still saying roughly the same thrust of it. You know, the details would be different. It would be boring to give the same talk all the time. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. I wouldn't want to do that. It would bore me crazy. But anyway, I have noticed that sometimes it, it struck me that like early on, early on in this millennium, people would listen because... It just seemed like a novelty. Like, wow, that's pretty crazy. You know, like, huh, you know what I mean? But now it's it's less that than we really need to talk about things like this because things are so far gone. And there's no mistaking it now. There's no ignoring it now. There's Well, of course there is in general. You know, there's any number of ways to distract yourself and not think about things. But I mean, in terms of people who might come to a talk, I would give. It just seems like much more serious and let's stay and talk and let's get down and we really need to address stuff, you know, we really need to have serious discussions. Whereas earlier, you know, less of that. I mean people would show up and you know, mm-hmm. like I said, they they might be interested just because it's kind of they never heard anything so crazy or but you know, much more not bad an eye. Not you know, because what is way crazier is what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, way exactly. more off the wall so you know obviously that's very bad but but the upside is that now people are more receptive you know they're already thinking along these lines you know as often as not 
don't need some American to come over here and tell you all this stuff. You already know that. So what are we going to do about it? And that kind of leads into, this is something I think about a lot. So we obviously need to radically restructure. No matter where you are on that threshold, I think many people would agree that we need to fairly radically restructure most things about most aspects of how we live. And there's different visions for that. But as capitalism teeters, you know, globally, it starts to get out of hand. And as climate change accelerates, it's going to, I think, quicken that that shift as well. It's all kind of, it's all falling apart right now to some extent. And I think we're seeing, as uh, we're talking about Hedges a little bit, he points out, you know, we're going to see a, a fascist grasping and backlash against that, which we're already seeing. But, so as all that happens, where's the balance between building something else to transition into, rebuilding different knowledge of ways to do things, and accelerating that process of stopping the destruction from all of these? How, how do those interplay? Such a uh, daunting thing, because nothing has worked yet. Although I feel like there's a lot of energy out there, and, and like we were just saying, there's quite a bit of receptivity, which we sometimes gravely underestimate. But, you know, you look for the touchstones. Where do we learn things? And, and I think the biggest thing to me is, is the uh, indigenous dimension. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the traditional uh, ways. And everybody almost, well, a lot of people anyway, give lip service to that stuff. But it really isn't permitted in terms of what that would mean, what it would undo, what it would reject and get rid of. So it's it's the positive and the negative. You're going to have both. You know, you got to have alternatives. you got to have some some connection to something practical. How do we feed ourselves? You know, I mean, you know, the obvious questions. While you're trying to figure out what is the negative, what is, how can you proceed against all these enemies, all these institutions, that all of which need to go, in my opinion, vir- virtually everything you can think of. It's that total. I mean, it's, that's, the, that's the nature of this condition. And to just hand, just to go after one issue or, or whatever, it's way past that time. You know, I, I mean, I don't think it ever was that time, but that's just missing the boat altogether. I think for the anarchist milieu or whatever we want to call it, it's uh, it's what we can learn in conjunction with, with the Native folks who are, who are trying to do stuff, and they are. I mean, just take a look at all the anti-pipeline stuff mm-hmm. that's going on in this in North America. And uh, I've got friends in Arizona, Southern Arizona. It's, it's just been an incredible privilege to learn stuff there, to be in some contact with Ohotam people, for example, through... Uh, there's got to be an opening in that sense. And it, to me, it was a fatal problem with Occupy that it didn't move, it never moved to de-occupy, to decolonize. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think that's a very big reason why no anarchists I know were interested in Occupy. Right away, they could see it almost totally, it was just a liberal deal, it wasn't, it wasn't going to go anywhere. Even though it was militant in some places like Oakland and... Mm-hmm. San Francisco, even in New York a little bit, but it never made an orientation shift that was needed. It never 
there's the legacy of the left that some people proclaim it proudly. Well, I reject that. The, the, the legacy is there, is there among the people who used to live here. And, and to miss entirely that this is occupied land and to call it mm-hmm. occupy is just a strange uh, gaffe. You know, it's more than a gaffe, but I mean, <laughs> for starters, mm-hmm. occupy, I mean, come on, what are you... But the left is still around, stopping things from going in a qualitatively better direction, in my opinion. All these people who uh, who love technology and mass society and, uh, you know, it's time for Native people to become voters and consumers and workers like all the rest of the slaves. You know, fuck that. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's the, that's the single most uh, specific important thing that that's, we're managing to miss. And not entirely. I mean, there's a bunch of new zines, for example, that are not missing that. Mm-hmm. You know, Black and Green Review, I'm now an editor there, and I'm, I'm delighted that there's way more anti-civilization ferment and thinking. But... Again, you know, we have yet to, to really connect the dots. So we got these lovely ideas or critique and stuff. But it's always the question, so what do you do with that? You know, where do you get going? And that's, and that's a terrifically big terrain. Mm-hmm. You and I were talking about media and the closed door, the, the amazingly strict parameters on what gets to be discussed, especially in America. You know, and what is just forbidden just ain't going to happen without a fight. You know, mm-hmm. but, but when that opens up, then we'll see. Once I got a new tire, I trucked south to the Bay, then through Bakersfield to Vegas, north through Utah and into Colorado. You heard from some of the folks in Denver last week and in episode two, but here are a couple more Colorado voices in Boulder. The first, depending on your media tastes, maybe one of your more recognizable voices in the alternative media landscape. We had met before in Spokane when he visited our community radio station, and despite a busy life, he has always made time to be in contact with me. We weren't able to do a second interview, but here's what David Barsamian had to say in 2015 in the alternative radio offices. He sent me off with probably too much Garden Fresh zucchini and some great contacts for the rest of the trip. Here is that interview. This is David Barsamian. I'm the founder and director of Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado, soon to celebrate its 30th anniversary. I was fed up with the corporate media and I wanted to do something about it. And by serendipity, when I moved to Boulder in 1978, a community radio station went on the air, KGNU. They needed volunteers. I didn't have a job. I didn't have any job prospects. And I said, okay, I'll volunteer. And a few years after that, after honing my skills and editing and writing and narrating and speaking, I started Alternative Radio as a a tonic to the waste and toxicity that's uh, produced by the major networks. How, in these last 30 years, has the alternative media outlook changed? Well, it's grown considerably. Mm -hmm. I'm not that lone island out there. There are other islands that have grown and expanded like uh, Amy Goodman's Democracy Now!, uh, like the Real News Network, all of the online uh, services that are available now. Al Jazeera is on the Middle East, you know, one of the best 
uh, sources of information. Uh, there's all kinds of new developments, you know, community radio stations are continuing, there's cable TV, there's deep dish TV, there's link, uh, there's free speech TV. So there's much more of an independent presence in the media landscape than 30 years ago. And we're at a pretty pivotal time, you know, I mean, the last few decades have been a very pivotal time in terms of are we going to make it as a species or not, really, if we look at climate change, uh, the ways that politics has been fully overtaken in this country by capital and the rest. What do you hear from, from listeners and from your guests regarding regarding that, like what we're looking at right now? What's your assessment? The overriding crisis, without question, is what we are doing to the planet the war on nature. That will trump everything. It will trump Palestine, Somalia, all of these other issues that are not unimportant. But if we don't have a habitat, you know, we're talking about game over. And the unrelenting war of corporate capitalism on nature, the looting and plunder and extraction of resources is leading to a dead end. It's unsustainable. The system is unsustainable. And capitalism, breaking news, is incapable <laughs> of addressing this issue because of its, DNA, its own DNA, which is connected to profits. Mm -hmm. It has to make money, forever. what is called growth, what mm -hmm. is called progress and, and jobs. So we need a radical transformation of the political and economic uh, landscape and a whole rethink. And it's got to be done fairly soon because I don't think time is on our side, on the planet's side, that is. Sure. And what role do you think that media, alternative media, has in that? Well, we have to raise these issues and we have to insist that, you know, our political system, which is awash in corporate cash, you know, res is responsive to what the planet demands, not what the system demands. Mm -hmm. Because that is, it's, as I said, it's, we're on a collision course. And moving deck chairs on the Titanic is, is going to buy us some time. OK, you know, we'll all drive Priuses. We'll all bike to work. We'll all compost. We'll all recycle cardboard and glass and plastic and do all those nice little things. But that we're just buying months, maybe a few years. So, you know, just moving those deck chairs around. The iceberg is clearly visible. There is no scientific doubt about it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the corporations, of course, are sowing doubt by creating fake science and bog bogus so, reports. There's a documentary on this called Merchants of Doubt that's been out and uh, other, you know, very substantiated reports of how, for example, ExxonMobil knew in 1981 that climate change was happening. What did it do? Did it publicize the news? No. It buried it and then dedicated the next decades to producing fake science. That it's just, you know, these are weather phenomena and different weather patterns. Mm -hmm. and, and they've been, you know, largely successful. But I think something critical happened in September in New York, September 2014. First was the largest march in history, three to 400,000 people. But the next day, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund divested from fossil fuel corporations. Hugely symbolic and significant. I mean, this is the Rockefellers, John D. Rockefeller, the founder of Standard Oil, you know, the first oil man. His family is divesting. And now uh, I was 
in Portland, Oregon, and an activist told me it's it's the hottest issue on campuses all all across the country, divestment from fossil fuel corporations. So that's a hopeful sign. Sure. And what are some other, um, through interviews you've done or stories or specific activists who are working, what are some other approaches, types of analysis, and the rest that, that make you hopeful, if there are any? Some of your favorite thinkers and projects around addressing Well, this? I've worked with Naomi Klein and actually have done two programs with her very recently. One is called uh, Transitioning to climate justice. I mean, that's another uh, issue. And the other one is called Capitalism uh, versus the Climate, a collision course. And I've been working with Bill McKibben, you know, getting these ideas out and trying to mainstream them, trying to get them into uh, circulation so that people are aware. The Pope's comments on climate change and the environment and ecotastrophe, the ecocide uh, that is going on, are very, very uh, significant and have attracted uh, quite a bit of attention. So do you think that that's making a difference in terms of general public acceptance? or Yes, the encyclical, the mm-hmm. papal encyclical, of course, is, has to be discussed in churches. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's on the menu, it's on the agenda. So hopefully congregations will become, you know, engaged and, and involved. A major church just divested from fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. So that could be the start of a, of a whole movement. Because the capitalists understand one thing, money. And if people are taking money away from them, they get that. And they'll have to adjust and change the destructive pattern that they're on. And then hopefully we just do something completely different. But... We'll see. We'll see what happens. Everything, you know, as the Buddhists say, is interconnected. You can't just argue for one thing. You know, you can't just say, stop this pipeline. It has to be about changing the way we generate energy and and switch to sustainable energy, which in the West is abundant. Solar and wind, very abundant. We We could be doing that. Sure, or just scaling back the way we do things. I mean, industrial solar and industrial wind have their issues, too. They're certainly less directly pollutive than than oil and the rest. But, um, yeah, we're just going to have to change a lot of things. And uh, I think that, I think that I mean, this is why I do community media work, but I think that we kind of lay the groundwork to make that possible in people's minds, to tell these other stories. What else outside of the media do you think that, people can look to in terms of going what look what Medea Benjamin does with uh, Code Pink going to buying shares small shares you know a few shares in a corporation that is environmentally destructive and showing up at the at the at the board meetings and you know asking uncomfortable questions inconvenient uh, truths injecting that that's that's one you know possibility but the question i always get asked you know is about you know i'm feeling full of despair and disp- depression i feel hopeless uh, my my advice and my response to that is to quote eduardo galeano the late uruguayan writer and journalist who said you know, let's save a despair for better times. When we start winning, we can indulge in some despair. But this is not the time. This is the time to engage and be active. Thank you, David, for that conversation and for all of the incredible work of Alternative Radio these 40-odd years. You can find his show and more links to the folks you're hearing from today in the show notes below the episode. The same day in Boulder, I headed to meet Michelle Gabrieloff Parrish, an educator, mother, and activist 
working on innovative direct action and creative education to stop development at a dangerous nuclear site. Having grown up in eastern Washington, in the odd shadow of the Hanford nuclear site, knowing many so-called downwinders who suffer long-term health effects, I felt like a sort of cousin to Michelle and all of the people navigating the legacy of Rocky Flats and challenging the dominant narrative of our nation's nuclear legacy. Here's some of what she had to say about her story. There's a bit of noise because we're on a rooftop adjacent to a busy road. So I'm Michelle Gaberloff Parrish, and I'm a mother of three and a wife, and I live in Superior, Colorado. And I found out after I moved to where I moved how close we were to Rocky Flats. Growing up in Colorado, I'd kind of heard of Rocky Flats, but I didn't really know that much about it, just that maybe it's kind of a toxic site and, you know, you wouldn't maybe want to live downstream from it or something, but I didn't know that much. And I also didn't realize that the property jutted towards my house when we passed the sign that said where it was. So how I got involved. I actually was at a training with Joanna Macy in California and someone, well, she and her assistant have worked a lot with people here in Colorado around Rocky Flats. And especially in hindsight, I can tell that uh, this woman, Anne, was having a hard time figuring out how to approach the issue with me, you know, and as someone who's worked before on other sort of community issues, I totally recognize it now. Or she was like, you live where? How many children do you have? And then you can see her try to calm herself down and be like, you know, have you, have you spoken with anybody about Rocky Flats? Or have you been involved with that at all? And I was like, no, I don't think it affects me. I don't think I'm that close to it. You know, and you could just sort of see her like trying to figure out what to tell me. And she just basically was like, please meet my friend out there that works for Rocky Mountain Peace and Justice. So I met with him and he started working on these issues since um, 1978, which is the year I was born and just totally blew my mind as to what's actually there, how close me and my family actually are, and also the fact that, you know, we're pretty conscious about what we eat, and on top of that, one of my sons has a lot of allergies, so we were avoiding wheat and dairy and corn syrup and all kinds of stuff, but here we were living right next to an ex-nuclear Superfund site, and... I feel like I should... Do I need to talk about Rocky Flats a little bit first? About what it is and and the history? Sure, yeah. So I found out in talking with Leroy that this site produced all of the nuclear bombs during the Cold War. 70,000 plutonium pits. And I had heard the reference to these plutonium pits or buttons or triggers. Actually, that was the word I had heard used was they just built the triggers. And I was like, oh, that's weird. So even building the triggers... Is, can be contaminating, but to me that word trigger meant like, I just imagined a gun, I thought it was like some sort of electrical something, I didn't understand that what they were referring to was the part of the nuclear bomb that explodes. The part of the bomb that explodes. The particle explodes. that splits, yes. that is split. And, yes. Yeah. So, and also that these are triggers for hydrogen bar- bombs because you need an atomic explosion that sets off the next explosion. So. How crazy also to find that out, you know, and like, what is it? Oh, yeah, they were just doing triggers out there. Well, yes, the trigger is the part of the bomb that explodes. That's not what I thought was out Mm -hmm. there. And people don't use the term bomb because, you know, the shell and the metal was manufactured elsewhere. Mm. But to me, the important part was manufactured here. That's probably no more harmful than manufacturing cars or something. I mean, like, it's that level of pollution. Which is what I thought maybe was there, maybe a little bit of tainted with plutonium. The other thing is that 
The threat from the plutonium is breathing it in or swallowing it, ingesting it, or getting it into a cut, which also is different because the way that people talk about radiation, you think that you're just exposing yourself to, you know, the equivalent of a chest x-ray or the equivalent of a dental x-ray every year or something like that. But it's not like that. You know, you can have a group of people you have a group of people standing out there every day for five days and nobody gets any harm from it. And then somebody comes and visits and walks through the property and inhales some plutonium and that's a lethal dose. So it's really random. It's also random where it gets lodged in your body, which I think has also been part of the difficulty. You can't look at our area and say, okay, people have more lung cancer here because people have, if you combine it all and look at like anomalous health problems with autoimmune diseases, brain cancer, kidney cancer, liver cancer, salivary gland cancer, if you look at that stuff and put it all together, then maybe we'd be above normal. But the thing is that it acts differently in different people's bodies and it gets uh, it gravitates to different places in people's bodies. It looks like in children, a lot of times, it gravitates to the reproductive organs. So we know that it's there. And if you learn about the history of the site, that's the other thing. You start learning about the history of the site, and you're horrified. So I started learning about the history of the site, all the contamination that happened, all of the cover-ups, all of the accidents. There were some serious fires that happened out there. And I started thinking I need to get involved. And I saw that they wanted to build a toll road going over what we know is some of the most contaminated part of the site. And so I signed the petition and then I like posted it on social media with my friends saying, we have to stop this toll road because if they build a toll road, soon there's going to be housing and businesses out there. You don't have a road in the middle of nowhere. A few months later, I was driving down to Denver and went that back way right by Rocky Flats and I saw the signs for Candelas. And I didn't quite know what it was, but I went and I looked and it turned out that I was wrong, so, which is rare. It turns out that I was wrong and that they'd already started on the housing and the housing businesses come first and then they're gonna build the toll road. Mm. And so in searching around about it, I realized that no one could find out about this housing development, it's called Candelas. No one could find out about the controversy. Like you. If you look at it or you Google it, there was nothing that said there's a controversy. So I decided that I was going to have to do something about it and raise awareness. So I started Candelas Glows and I did candelasglows.com and started a Facebook page and then decided to go to the grand opening events with some friends <laughs> and some hazmat suits <laughs> and oh some gosh. signs and some information, some flyers with the timeline about the history of the plant. And we went out there a couple of times for a couple of grand opening events that they had, and and I, I partly named it Candela's Glows. Sorry if I'm all over the place. No, it's great. It's great. Yeah, I, I partly named sense. it Candela's Glows because in Spanish, Candela's is like candle, so it's Candela's Glows. Well, it turns out that the site was, when it was in operation, the plant was shut down by an FBI and EPA raid. It's the only time in history that that's happened, where government agencies have gone and raided another government agency like that. And it turns out that the FBI internally referred to the raid as Operation Desert Glow. Wow. So, um, and it turns out that people who grew up in the area have all kinds of jokes and inside, you know, about references things about glowing. glowing. In the dark and, yeah. <laughs> so, we started Candela's Glows. We went out there a couple of times. 
we got a much bigger response than I could have imagined because it turns out this is such a big part of Colorado history. So I didn't really realize what I was tapping into and the richness of people's experiences with this. There's people who, you know, protested to bring to bring awareness about it, which is partly why the FBI and EPA got involved. Um, there were workers. There were people that worked at this cleanup that they attempted to do. So. It turned out that, and there were all the neighbors that were concerned and he'd either been sick or their family member had been sick or their neighbors had been sick. So the response that we got was crazy and some of it was really intense, you know, and I don't think that I'd really been prepared for that either where, you know, we went out there, held some signs, wanted it to be fun and we had like two people come up to us that first time and ask us if we thought that their thyroid cancer came from Rocky Flats. You know, and I'm like, oh my God, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I don't, I don't, I, at that point, I was certainly no expert on history of the site or how this stuff works. And by the time that started happening on a regular basis, I started saying, you know, I don't know, but you're not the first person to ask me that. And I have started to realize that a lot of people in this area have thyroid issues. But there's other things too, and there's also cancers, and some cancers that people don't feel comfortable talking about, you know, like reproductive cancers, especially in children. People don't want to talk about that, and people feel ashamed, I think. So we had that. We also had intense interactions with workers, you know, workers who at first maybe even seemed mad at us, and then suddenly would change their tune and be like, you know, in a still kind of an aggressive way sometimes, but they'd be like, you have to stop this and you have to stop people from living out here. This is really dangerous. In fact, you probably shouldn't even be standing out here to raise awareness, right? Not just like, don't live here. They're like, walking around here is not safe. Wow. So we also had workers come to us and tell us that what we were concerned about was only the tip of the iceberg. And I did go and look at that time and saw that the Department of Labor said there's over a thousand carcinogens at the site. So plutonium is just one of a thousand Ugh. of things that we know cause cancer there. So that was that. I've got three kids, I've got a job, I'm a pretty busy person. You know, I didn't intend for this to take up so much of my time. But then the developers of the development, Candelas, threatened to sue me for millions of dollars if I didn't shut up. So sorry to leave that tale on a cliffhanger, but you can follow Candela's Glows online and find the full interview soon in the archive. Women taking charge in fights against pollution is a tradition, and I want to also offer a shout out to Donna Young, who I met just before reaching Colorado where her work as a midwife made her a whistleblower against the dangers of fracking in her small town of Vernal, Utah. That conversation, too, will hit the archive soon. After Colorado, I headed to South Dakota, then on a social visit to Yellowstone, north to Calgary, and, thwarted by a rare and terrifying tornado on the BC-Alberta border, back to Spokane by way of my grandparents' house on the Canadian border a little bit early. I returned the car I had borrowed, and flew with a good friend to start the mass transit leg of the journey with a week together in Detroit, with some of her friends there. That was a surprising challenge, though also a lot of fun. For a lot of my life, and certainly up until the point of this trip, I kept my activist life kind of cloistered from the rest of my life. Some of my radical comrades became friends, and some of my friends were or became radicals, but others I just kept in a different zone. This led to some intense discussions in Detroit with my old friend and my new friends where we crashed. Gentrification was a big flashpoint, 
class in general, race, religion, the whole mess. Looking back, I think that having real, deep conversations with these folks, rather than small talk upon meeting, actually gave us a better, more genuine relationship, and I've gone back since to visit on my own. This is a part of the conversation I had this summer with, in order of voice appearance, Billy, Christopher, and Corey. They live in a split house on an old, beautiful tree-lined block with their young families. While they've all been involved in arts, the food system, and other activist stuff, I talked to them just as neighbors, which too is a political role. I learned and reflected a lot in talking with them, and I hope you enjoy our talk as well. Here it is, via imperfect Zoom call this summer. I don't want to speak first. <laughs> you want to go, Billy? No. No, I'm just still trying to get all your pictures on the same screen. <laughs> uh, up in the right-hand corner, you got a little thing that says speaker view, and you want to switch it to gallery view. You're so old, Billy. It's an iPad. Oh, oh it's on the- I don't know. I don't know how to do it on oh. an iPad. <laughs> there, I got it. I got it. Okay. It was an iPad for a second. Okay. Uh, there, so those are huge topics. Is there anyone particular that you'd like to start off with? Or um, is there something that you heard last time that you want to pick, a thread that you want us to pick up on? I mean, last, when we talked, there seemed to be a lot of, we talked about about the block a lot talking about kind of racial dynamics of of both having lived there but one family being black one family being white the dynamics of Detroit in general right in that moment I guess that could be a good place to start just like I I don't know what's happened in the last five years out there yeah well one of the one of the biggest things that has happened on the block is housing when you were here less than half of the block the housing on the block was occupied and there are three structures now unoccupied out of 15, 16. So when Billy and Sarah first bought on the block, it was maybe a quarter less. Yeah, maybe a quarter occupied and the rest were vacant. And when Corey and I moved moved in just a little bit more, and it has been a fast track period from 2014 to 2020. And it's interesting, the majority of the housing renovation has actually happened by a community development corporation here. They've been in the neighborhood for 25 years. They're fairly well respected. And it is one of their goals to maintain the culture of the neighborhood. And they are they are providing housing at below market rate, which our area market rate went from when we moved in to three, four hundred a unit to twelve hundred a unit, you know, in five or six years asinine incline of uh, market rate, but CDC, because they own so much in the neighborhood, the neighborhood is is uniquely positioned to battle gentrification from what we talked about before, but there are still instances specific on our block of two four-family flats that were purchased, renovated, and our market rate, and everybody in those two four-family flats currently are all white. And every unit that CDC renovated on the block, currently all the tenants are black. Mm. So it is interesting to look at those dynamics. Culturally on our block, it feels very much like a Detroit neighborhood in terms of the culture of porch hangouts, barbecues, 
music community it feels like it it feels like the neighborhood should i guess because i think there's been some very intentional slowing of gentrification and i i can go into it more but there i do have uh interesting perspective on how i view the white people who have moved onto the block um that i'm trying to battle uh in my heart we we can get there but that's a that's a broad in terms of housing um and gentrification of where we are currently from when you were here cool so it's good to see everybody still there and yeah i guess something that billy had said before that kind of speaks to what you were saying christopher about the vibe i guess is that what you mostly cared about billy you said are people going to be good neighbors like less worried i think that there was a lot of anxiety we were talking about the optics of you know at the time you two being some of the only white folks on the block, worrying that, you know, your whiteness is going to beget more whiteness and all of the problems that come with that in terms of gentrification. Billy, you were saying your focus was, are people going to show up and, and be a neighbor? It sounds like CDC has facilitated that, but I'm curious what you think about that now. Has that focus been, like, maintained? Yeah, I think we have a lot of good neighbors. It's a great question. Are you going to be a good neighbor? Because I don't think I, I don't want to be next to a neighbor who I'm afraid is going to shoot me, whether accidentally or purposefully. And I also don't want to necessarily be next door to a neighbor who is going to, whether purposefully or intentionally, tear apart a culture because they're more focused on the cost of uh, raising their property values and not worried about indirectly tearing apart a community that they may not even recognize as a community because they're only focused on the Zillow number. And what I've started to learn is that's different than racial dynamics as well. Mm-hmm. So all that to say is, yeah, I have good neighbors. And I think we do have a lot of good neighbors. And I do give CDC a lot of props for for that. And yeah, I I I, I don't I don't say the G word very much anymore. <laughs> I was all about the G word. Uh, And I remember even before I moved to Detroit, I was like, gentrification is terrible. Ah, let me focus all of my energy on destroying this terrible thing. And yeah, I felt it in my guts and I was concerned about my participation, not because of the lightness of my skin color, but because of my occupation. As, as an artist, dude, I don't know. Since the last time we talked, I just, ah, I got no real clear, clear views on it anymore. Or like it's, it's become so complex and the forces at play are so complex. And I've seen many different reasons why people have lost their house. I've seen many different reasons why our neighborhood has been propped up and supported in some ways and also not in other ways. So I will say, I will try my best to be as clear minded and reflective and bring whatever historical perception I can to this. But as far as my understanding of of gentrification as a larger movement, um, I just, I am a gentrifier and I don't really understand what what it is anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I think that's a super interesting zone for that conversation because it's like, yeah, it's a mess. And I appreciate you, you saying that and bringing it up because I think it, it crosses, it crosses all those boundaries. I don't even know how to articulate what I'm trying to say just yet. So I'll let y'all do it. But that might be a good time actually for what did, what did you want to say about that earlier? Chris, are you down to come back to it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, so I'm a, I'm a very extroverted individual, very friendly eye contact all the time with anybody who's outside on the block wave into, it doesn't matter who you are. You're driving. I wave at you. I see you. You see me. I smile. Unless you're a new white couple moving in next door to this four family flat where I lost some good neighbors because their building got sold. So I realized like I have this somewhere deep rooted angst and sadness about the neighbors that I've lost. And I'm reflecting that back on the new tenants that all happen to be white. And that looks very much like these people have lived here for six months to some of them even two years. And I don't know their names yet. Whereas you look at anybody else who's moved in that are not in those two family flats, I've tried to learn their names very quickly. And so there's, there's this like, I don't know what it is in me in terms of like my holier than thou, but I am, I am shunning the new white people on the block and I don't give them any grace. And so I've been trying to work through that's That's like a past six month process trying to work through. And I've been introducing myself to the newer people on the block, but I still don't know all of them. And there's people that have been here for over two years now that. Yeah, that that totally helps crystallize where I was trying to go based on what Billy said about, you know, the G word. You know, I've reflected on that own, my own discomfort around that a lot as someone who's who's an artist, who's a young, you know, white person who's lived in urban places, who is you know, a mid 20 something complaining about gentrification while I live in like a downtown, like kind of hip area where I was just living and also having that holier than thou feeling Mm. that I think is something that we're hitting a lot, kind of like racially across topics as white people like awake or whatever you want to say. So maybe this is just a theory I want to throw out mostly for Billy, since you brought up the thing with the G word, maybe your really specific case of your block and having this organization that's invested in the community, invested in property, in preserving something and supporting people who are already of the culture that's present. There's hope for a broader movement in focusing more on almost like community defense, like Mm -hmm. defense sounds like such an aggressive word, but like preservation rather than kind of trying to fight this big process that isn't in a lot of people's individual control. Does that make sense? Yeah, I see I see gentrification as less of a evil thing and more of like a force like it's not neutral, but it's not always bad either. And our friends, I mean everybody that we talk to, you know, like yeah, there's going to be we've heard honestly, not a lot about people being upset about specifically gentrification, but we've also heard like, oh, people are excited about these new restaurants, people from um, 
grew up in this neighborhood are excited about having new restaurants and excited about having, you know, this Grand Avenue being renovated and like the coffee shop that went in and, you know, that we look at it and we're like, oh no, that's bad. That's gentrification. And like, that's not necessarily how people who live here see it. You know, there's going to be a diversity of opinions, but I've encountered that a lot, that people are excited about new businesses coming in. Yeah, I am glad that there is, I've started to think less like the coffee shops are bad and more if we're going to focus our energy, it needs to be on kind of like you said, like how do we keep people living here instead of just moving people out? So like, yes, new businesses are coming in, but like, how do I like help my neighbor with his, you know, when he's behind on his taxes, like what's my responsibility in that situation? And how can I, you know, talk to my city council person about like rent caps and stuff like that. I've been thinking more about those things and less about like, you know, the coffee shops and restaurants going in. Yeah, I, re- I remember when coffee shops were the symbol of gentrification. And I just have to continue to be honest here. I've lost all perspective. You know, I, what do I mean by that? I think I was more passionate about the conversation the less people in my neighborhood I knew. Hmm. I think the more I was able to have conversations with people in my neighborhood and get to know them and get to know the things they like and don't like, then I was less passionately involved with conversations with people who didn't live in the neighborhood and who were really concerned about the idea of gentrification, but weren't having any of those conversations. Mm. And I think it can really easy get into speaking for communities and speaking for people. And we start to walk into the giving voice to the voiceless area. And then the next thing you know, people who are, have means are executing decisions on behalf of a lot of people. Yeah. And that is an all under this conversation of this big umbrella of the word gentrification. And then we start to have symbols like the coffee shop or the hipster or the, the poor black old neighbor. And now we start trafficking in that language. And then, like you said, like there's a lot of emotions that can start flying, but they don't actually touch down in the lives of a neighborhood. And so for me, I, I, I was that was my perspective because I had all these emotions and I didn't know where to put them and meeting new people is hard sometimes and meeting new people across cultural divides is really hard sometimes and trusting people from across the cultural divide is takes time and what is built in that trust is actually for me the the, the answers are there because we we get to see oh how do people really care about their neighborhoods um yeah, I'm yeah, I'm less interested in talking about gentrification, more interested in just talking to my neighbors mm-hmm. about what they want. Thanks again so much to Billy, Christopher, and Corey for being vulnerable and talking with me. You can hear that whole conversation in the archive, along with one featuring another CDC-related project focused on urban farming from 2015. You already heard a lot of where I went from there first to Toronto and then Montreal, where I would also return many times since, 
down through Vermont to New York City, then Philly and Baltimore, and then, against my original vision, to Lexington, Kentucky. When planning out this trip in the spring of 2015, I showed the draft map to a friend of a friend who said, oh, you're messing up, you're not going to Lexington. I was like, why? And he said I absolutely had to meet his friend Greg, who was, quote, a dude version of you, but like, more hardcore. I guess I was curious enough to add the stop, and I had a ball with the last folks you'll hear from today, and this season, the Kentucky Workers League. Individual introductions are omitted here because I was not able to reach everyone for consent. I think that their reflections on forming an organization, building affinity and friendship in our movements, and rooting our action through meeting needs are as important now as ever. We talked after moving their stuff out of a temporary office space over really good food. Here's part of that conversation. <laughs> so maybe the logical place to start is with one of one of you two, Greg and Will, about kind of the origins, the origin myth of <laughs> Kentucky Workers League. So how did how did this all happen? Well, Kentucky actually has a really long and like rich history of um, workers organizing, especially like in Appalachia and, and in the East, and especially like um, a particularly like radical strain. I mean, up until the seventies and eighties, mine workers were like destroying service mine equipment and performing sabotage. I think for Will, sort of like went abroad and sort of found models, but I think you know there was this moment of where we looked around and all of our friends had shitty jobs where we were being like constantly exploited in really terrible ways and were pretty crushed and you know rather than like share weird memes about it on Facebook at a certain point we decided that we would try to do something about it. You know I would give uh, Meg credit really uh, I think she was one of the catalysts for our organization coming together she had just had this like terrible job at Amazon, which was like pretty bad. And Greg says I went abroad. By abroad, he means I went to Pittsburgh, <laughs> um, uh, the Paris of Appalachia. Uh, and I have some contacts in Philadelphia and in uh, Beaver County, Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh. And uh, the three of us, uh, Greg, Meg, and myself, and some other comrades who are no longer involved with the organization, we were all kind of thinking about, you know, like, kind of everybody we know is working in service or retail jobs. It seems like that people have a problem that's, like, not an individual problem with having a dead-end job. It's a um, kind of structural problem. And so... A lot of our cohort are at least some college education and are downwardly mobile. And our, like, one weird trick we wanted to do was find a way to combine that cohort with people who were coming from, uh, you know, long-term working-class backgrounds. Initially, we weren't thinking, like, we want to start a socialist organization. All of us at that first meeting were, at least on, like, some level, like, some kind of socialist. And it wasn't until later when we were in touch with a group in Philly called Philly Socialists that was doing kind of their like mass organizing and their service programs like through their like actual socialist organization rather than being like, okay, so like we're the socialists. We're like gonna go to like, you know, all the different activist meetings and meetings in town and try to like recruit people to our socialist organization from the other activist groups we decided we wanted to go out and organize the unorganized and that's kind of the founding myth it was a uh, a little bit more touch and go than that for about a year and things like got kind of ugly but it's been 
really fruitful to see it blossom over the past, really just like eight months or so. Mm-hmm. So, um, so serving some of those functions as a union of the otherwise non-unionized. And I also saw a little sign on the front door about Rock Daniels. Um, <laughs> That's you. Great name. <laughs> from what I gathered from the flyer, what's what's going on with Rock Daniels? Um, so, like, <laughs> about a year ago, the first time that we were going out and, and flyering in order to let folks know about our solidarity network, Will and I went down the street called Grand Avenue, and there's this woman that had this beautiful dog and was like hanging six out. beautiful dogs <laughs> right we didn't know about the six beautiful dogs at the time but she was just sort of like having her own like it was very obvious that she was like super comfortable and that everybody on the block knew her and that it was like just this kind of constant block party and so she came out to meet us and see what we were doing and her name was Alex Yates and we told her about the Solidarity Network and that we sort of help folks in individual fights with their boss or landlord by you know, adding more weight and strength to their side. And she was like, oh, well, I'll definitely need this. And she took our number, and and then, you know, it was a year later, almost, that she, like, called me one morning to say that she woke up that morning, uh, she and her son, to dudes on her roof ripping it off. And so, basically, she lives in sort of, like, a quote-unquote up-and-coming part of Lexington um, uh, on a street that is made with row houses that were built for... Uh, workers in the early 20th century that is now being rapidly gentrified by this man, Brock Daniels. He bought something like a dozen houses on the block in just the first four months of uh, 2015. And he had no interest. Most of the houses were abandoned, but two of them had folks in them. And rather than go through the process of formally evicting anybody and like waiting the legally required amount of time, he just felt like he could intimidate the folks on the blocks into leaving and so the family across the street just felt like they they just up and moved in the middle of the night after rock knocked on their doors and but alex alex wanted to fight so she called us um we spent several weeks just sort of trying to meet as many folks on the block as possible we had several meetings in the church down the street um eventually we ended up blockading her house uh, for two days, um, which prevented Rock's crew from working on it and actually started him uh, to go through the legal process of evicting her, which bought her enough time to find another place, move on her own time and her own schedule as a, you know, as a single mom, and also allowed her son, uh, Desmond, to finish school at the school that he was, he had started at the school year, which was like her big main concern when she contacted us. And then, you know, what's also interesting about that too is that, you know, all of these people have sort of like come out of the woodwork to attack rock um and i think we also look a lot stronger going forward you know it's like very very clear that like even though we you know as far as we're concerned we met our goals we won our campaign we don't really have any further business with rock um we're deeply deeply embedded in a part of his psyche (laughs) Uh, yeah there's been some he's like kind of personally harassed uh some of our members in public since that time present company actually i think like almost everybody around this table at this point except for (laughs) ben's got out of that but uh um that's what i get for not leaving the house oh well um and somebody's got to watch the cats. But <laughs> the uh, I think what's 
something to keep in mind about our organizing model and a um, kind of concept from guerrilla warfare, really, that I like to keep in mind is the idea that revolutionaries are kind of, I mean, like, the people are like the sea that, like, we're swimming in, right? Like, we can't, like, we're like fish. We literally can't breathe if we're not in touch with the people. Yeah. So just in the last couple minutes that we have, because I want to respect time, it's a really broad type of organization and a broad type of organizing that's like part disaster management in situations like that and part proactive. What advice would people have for people in other communities or even in your own who want to start doing this type of work but maybe don't know how to start? (laughs) Or resources also, like what resources did you access? Look outside of the like weird carnival of activist folks you already know. I mean if we had if we had only networked with the like liberals that we work with and, and are our friends, we would still be five folks in a living room. But the fact that we like decided to very intentionally like remain outward facing has enabled us to grow incredibly fast and, and much faster than I think any other organization in town in terms of active membership. And um, um, and we have like no staff person, we have no like grant money um, and. That's a function of the fact that the people we meet, we meet a need that they need fulfilled. You know, a lot of people in your area might try to redirect you to, like, the closest, like, oh, well, here's, like, you know, like, a free clinic where you can go to to, like, get legal help. Or I know this little group that, like, specializes in, like, you know, looking into the law for you. You know, sometimes, like, the law's not on your side. Sometimes the law is not on your schedule. And if you're able to rally a group of people together, um, you can change that dynamic entirely. Mm-hmm. For me, it's, you know, I come from a smaller town where there is no radicalism at all. Like, there's, you know, it's Georgetown, Kentucky, where there's a Toyota plant and, like, the union, the UAW, has, like, zero ability to get into the plant. It just doesn't exist there. Sometimes, you know, you're from a smaller area and you feel like you're the only person with any remotely leftist leanings. And, you know, the biggest piece of advice is just don't lose hope. It will happen eventually. You will find like-minded people sometimes in very surprising places. It does happen eventually. It took me forever since high school to find a group like this, and I'm like, wow, they're nice and also dedicated activists who I can learn a lot from, so. You know, we view this as a long process. We borrowed from our comrades in Philly that we're in a kind of 40-year party-building process. Like, you know, like we don't think that over the next five years we'll be able to, like, put together, like, a socialist organization that can, like, herald the like glorious revolution or anything like that like we like view this as like a kind of like arduous like process of just like meeting people where they're at and so uh you know um if you're out there despairing and you want to get something going there's no reason to be like upset because it's not you know you have all these urgent feelings of like needing to do something just like take your time and figure out what you need to do Thank you so much one more time to all the folks you've heard from today and in the rest of the season before. I want to also take this opportunity to thank the people who made this trip possible in 2015 through crowdfunding and by illuminating the web of connections that brought me to all these conversations. Thank you especially to Michael and Marianne, two comrades in Spokane, who entrusted their car to me and let me put 5,000 miles on it. Thanks again to all of the guests this season who took time to talk with me again and bring this idea to life. And thanks to all of you for listening, for your messages, 
for sharing the show and everything else. I hope that this has helped inspire, agitate, and improve your practice, whether you're activist curious or a seasoned pro looking to make a change or somewhere else entirely. Again, I will be including all of the 2015 interviews as an unedited portion of my extensive archive, including photos and the original blog posts from the trip over the coming months. You can find those and follow for updates at praxisradio.com archive. That's P-R-A-X-I-S-R-A-D-I-O dot com slash archive. See you down the line. But the, the center has great podcasts. Yeah, this sounds good. I know, right? Yeah, NPR. Liberals, yeah, liberals all.